the combination of question asking, curiosity, and then realizing that I actually was so lucky to have had a very kind of a mosaic of a background. I have a much more cross-cultural upbringing, living in all parts of the world, and a mother who had done the same, and seeing that that could be a gift to piece together people's stories and fill in the cracks and to actually understand them, even if sometimes the language was even different and certainly the cultural reference points were different, was such a beautiful feeling of like, I think I can do this and I might be able to do it uniquely. Welcome to the Intersections Podcast, where we take you to the crossroads of ideas. I'm Seth Shapiro, and on each episode, we explore the knowledge and beliefs that lead to human flourishing through the lives and stories of influential voices. In 1839, the British author Edward Bulwer-Lytton wrote that the pen is mightier than the sword. The power of words to analyze, criticize, and inspire change has been recognized throughout the ages. Writers using language to articulate a positive social vision have been a powerful tool to identify often hidden problems and move people and societies to create solutions to deal with the challenges of their time. Ann Snyder is the editor-in-chief of Comment Magazine, which on its website says is rooted in 2,000 years of Christian social thought and engages in public theology for the common good. She has published in Atlantic Monthly, the Washington Post, and the City Journal. She's also been involved in a variety of other projects that address social and spiritual challenges, including the Philanthropy Roundtable's Character Initiative, the Center for Opportunity Urbanism, and the Trinity Forum. Ann Snyder, welcome to Intersections. Thank you. You were the editor-in-chief uh, of Comet Magazine, mm-hmm. and in the description of the magazine, it says it's dedicated to renewing North American social architecture. Could mm-hmm. you explain that? What does that, that term mean? Yeah, it's a, it's sort of a term we have an internal culture war about. Some people hate it because they think it makes no sense and is way too pedantic and fancy and um, maybe overly metaphorical and then others love it. I'm in the loving camp. Um, I did not come up with it, but I think it's a great way of capturing or I find it like visually evocative of the fact that um, even in our sort of late modern era now, we tend to think we ourselves as individuals create our our reality, our own reality, the reality of others. And we tend to sort of ignore, and I would say, especially anyone under age 40 today, um, tends to ignore just the scaffolding of what actually makes a community, a town, a city, a society function. So the institutions and norms between this one huge institution, namely the state and the individual. And there's just this like almost Tocquevillian scatter plot of schools and religious institutions and volunteer associations, and then deeper sort of cultural norms and habits. Like that's sort of the, uh, like if you were to draw a map of the nodes that actually are kind of interrelating to one another, healthcare, law, et cetera, that we are kind of interested in that, all of that turf, both the sort of traditional institutions that have historically been trusted, at least say in America um, and and Canada in our case, Um, but also looking at distrust and open to what could be reimagined, like maybe, okay, if formation isn't happening as well, say in higher ed or in education period and or the church or whatever, we're not going to be like totally scared of that. And we're just going to ask, well, where, who's doing it creatively in other domains? So we're just like really interested in that, like Think of it as a garden between our own agency 
and then the nations were a part of, um, and there's this wonderfully textured in between. Hmm. Has that shifted being what we've all been through with COVID the last couple of years? If I hear people who are being very reflective about how they spent their pandemic, what the pandemic revealed in their own lives, it somehow keeps circling back to this desire to recover their full, their sense, their sense of themselves as fully human. And that takes many different forms, depending on who you are, your demographic. But, but that theme as huge as it is, is like, it's such a Pacific ocean of a, of a, of a topic in many ways, but that seems to be shared. And so I think we're trying to take that seriously. And so far as we listen to a wide variety of people and sectors and geographies and so on um, and say, okay, well, what is, um, why are we concerned about this? Why does it sort of feel like even this this question of what it is to be human feels like like there's a lot of emotions around it that expresses itself in our politics and also like a lack of consensus. Um, so let's go there in a way that's hopefully not too abstract or like overly philosophical, but is like grounded and accessible to the, to where people are living daily. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was going to ask, that was your, your series, The Restoration of the Human, I guess in your recent edition. Yeah. Um, I know you mentioned, you know, the percentages about people, 54% of Americans say no one knows them well. And you sort of, you saw that as a, a kind of jumping off point for that series. Have you received any pushback or response from that, whether from religious leaders or other members, you know, different institutions um, agreeing with that, pushing back on that, on that series? You know, we really haven't. I just had a colleague say to me the other day, comment needs to maybe attract a little bit more hate, which is a very interesting <laughs> vision. Um, and I'm not, I don't think we're not trying to skirt controversy or like yeah. even politics necessarily. Um but, you know, I think that core, I mean, I, I think that's, I quoted some of the statistics on the backs of just saying sort of my own learning around human development, almost like neuroscientifically how we fundamentally come, we're born desiring to be seen. And that like act of being recognized and recognizing another is somehow extremely central and foundational to a life that flourishes or that doesn't, or, or you know, uh, for all of, the, of course, unpredictable things and moments of suffering and so on that, of course, will hit all of us in a million different ways. Uh, so I think that just the very like basic observation that this notion of what it is to see and be seen is like at the core of what it is to feel human because we don't exist in a vacuum. Somehow that I I just, we only got like a lot of, I think, gratitude that that was named and it sort of, I don't, I don't think people, um, I didn't hear any negative pushback, but that's not, but maybe, maybe I, I should have gone deeper and <laughs> stirred the pot a little bit more and said something a little less banal. But I think in some ways, you know, a lot of what I say about our work or my, at least my own work is sort of like, it feels like so 101 sometimes the things we point out as being core to the good life or core to just knowing that this is a truth about human wiring and nature. The fact that these things need to be said and that people are perceiving these statements as sort of profound found and all too rare. That's just fascinating to me. Like where is our, where we're putting a lot of our conscious media attention, public debates, uh, frankly, where our elite schools, what they're focused on communicating. I, th- there's something there that is like, I thought, I'm like, why is friendship such a special and popular topic? That's really interesting. Mm. Well, how did you become a writer? What got you interested yourself in, uh, in writing? You know, I was told in college that actually I should back up in high school. Um, 
I did very poorly on some English paper. I think it was a sophomore or junior. And I had um, a professor say to me or a teacher say, Anne, your verbs need to grow up. And it was funny, something, you know, those little statements that if your parents said them, you would never remember them. But if like a certain kind of teacher says the same thing, you know, it's like impactful. And I, so I just started playing around with words. I had been a pretty serious pianist. So I was much more in like music. And I think I was like, wait a second, like language and linguistics is a musicality here. I should just, you know, try never to use the verb to be and just, I, I took that seriously like so that was sort of the beginning of me like taking more risks and I didn't think anything of it I just didn't want to get more d minuses I think (laughs) at the time fast forward to college and I did have some professors say I had some opportunities to tell stories about an experience digging a water system in Honduras. I went to this liberal arts school in in um, outside Chicago called Wheaton, uh, but I had this experience um, studying at Harvard for a semester, which I don't usually share, except it was sort of going back to a certain subculture I'd grown up in. And I brought the, I sang in this acapella group, brought them to Wheaton. It was sort of this like bridging worlds between two fairly different subcultures. And so yeah. in some of my, I, I use language in that case, often speaking and storytelling to try to, move and melt the audience to see a different lens. And Mm -hmm. I had professors say at that time, you should be a writer. And I totally rejected it. I thought writers were, I respected writers, but I just thought they hated people and they were in closets all day long and never were social. And I I thought, oh, I don't, I think that would make me really miserable. Um, So I rejected it. And then um, fast forward, when I cut my teeth sort of professionally, um, I found myself working in a world that saw journalists as crucial to the theory of change. If you can affect the media, in this case, they'd be more sort of like higher conceptual long form um, op-ed people, uh, magazine writers. These are not necessarily hard-nosed reporters, um, but a sort of more slightly more conceptual type of journalist. So I just was around... I was around these people as a 22 to 25 year old, and I just noticed that they were never bored with their lives or their jobs. They were always curious. They kept on learning. And um, so I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like they seem really alive and they could be 70 and just like full of vitality. So I was sort of attracted to that as a just a a way to spend one's time. And then, um, yeah, so many other things occurred, but I just had a a few people basically gave me a push to, I grew up overseas as a kid and people were like, you should use some of your cross-cultural heritage and your own childhood to um, understand why certain immigrant communities in the U.S. think this or that. So I think the, the combination of question asking, curiosity, and then realizing that I actually was so lucky to have had a very kind of a mosaic of a background. I don't, I mean, I envy those that have really coherent geographic or sort of communal roots. That is not my story. I have a much more cross-cultural upbringing, living in all parts of the world and a mother who'd had done the same. And um, I think that seeing that that could be a gift to piece together people's Mm. stories Mm. and fill in the cracks and to actually understand them, even if sometimes the language was even different and certainly the cultural reference points were different, was such a beautiful feeling of like, I think I can do this and I might be able to do it uniquely. How then do I translate the beauty of the interview and this moment of connection and insight that I may be able to both understand and awaken in another person? How do I then share that with the world? And it's writing seemed like, um, the most obvious way to do that. So that's sort of the short answer to your question. And then I had many more experiments after that failures. And, um, but it's a fun thing. It's a very, it's an honor to get to, um, you know, I was less, I'm very much interested in telling the truth. I was less interested in sort of just 
straight up reporting the facts. There's a way that I think that this role of interpretation and honor of beautiful work in the world and really courageous decisions and people of character and sort of communities that bring out people's best or transform lives. Like that was the domain that I was interested in capturing and to be, to be given the trust to do that remains like a, there's sometimes nothing better. So could you, you mentioned your, your background, you grew up overseas. Could you talk a little bit about your, your story and your faith story as well, how you personally came to faith, if your background is a religious background or kind of what was that journey like for you? Yeah. So I, um, I was born in the U.S., I was born in Boston, but when I was four years old, my family moved to Hong Kong, and then when I was eight, we moved to Australia, so I didn't really understand what it was to be an American until moving back in, like, preteen years, uh, which is still, like, I spent, you know, now I feel like I'm I'm fully an American, I own that, even if I remain perplexed at times by this wild and unruly country, Um, but I think that experience, my mother had grown up um, the daughter of linguists and actually Bible translators in the jungles of Peru. So she kind of grew up near and around Quechua tribes and was a very, I would argue, like a very um, head of its time approach to, there's, you know, so many different ways I, I could join many in critiquing all, all kinds of missionary movements throughout history. But this was one where you stayed for decades and you really submitted yourself to the home tribe culture and um, you were a student of it for a couple decades before you even began help, you know, in this case, creating a written alphabet, you know, it's, it's really more in some ways more of an anthropological thing than anything. There, there was a missiological element, of course, but so I just, I think the combination of South American heritage, which sort of flooded the aesthetic of our apartment in Hong Kong, but in this, my father was not in religious life. He um, worked in sort of international um, markets and finance. And so we were in this kind of socially, maybe more diplomatic, you could argue like Eastern cosmopolitan social world. Um, And the combo, I didn't know anything different. It was just, I think aesthetically, the conversations we were having, the different types of people we were meeting paired with my mother's own values growing up, you know, having clothes from a missionary barrel and growing up barefoot, like all of those like things just were a palette. Like that was the palette I understood to be a a human life um, from what my parents sort of handed down and then how we lived Mm -hmm. overseas. And then, um, yeah, I think there is, I I had a, um, so I, I, yes, I did grow up in a Christian home. There are some complexities there. Um, just, like there aren't any family and household family of origin. Uh, but I, I do, I do sort of, um, there is something mystical I can say now, I think in, um, I mean, I'm very grateful for the many ways in which my parents raised me, informed my sister and me, but, um, my grandfather hurt my, so my mother's dad, just the way he led his life and he, you know, living amidst these tribes, but also, you know, having relationships with and hosting pretty significant national uh, government leaders from Peru, Bolivia, other countries, and this ability to sort of go, quote, high and low from a social class educational perspective. He was involved in some pretty interesting um, kind of ecumenism work between Protestants and Catholics in Latin America, the charismatic renewal movement in the Catholic world. And I just happened to have been given a letter he had written um, some their American sort of supporters on one year they were on furlough and back in the U.S. in the early 70s. And just like his observations about 
social movements at the time, just after the civil rights movement in the U.S., paired with just his hope and where he was finding joy. There is something in his life and who he was that didn't, you know, there's something about him that I think I never understood. It has been an adult lesson for me to learn that a lot of people in the U.S. see Christianity first and foremost as some sort of a Western thing. I think I just grew up assuming it to be a very global faith that incarnated in very distinct ways depending on cultural context. So that kind of lesson that this is not, there's not like a headquarters of the faith, like Christianity doesn't have a Mecca, which is very unique about it, has huge implications for how we understand its relationship to politics, its relationship to the nation, of course, its relationship to race. Um, but all of that was just second nature. I mean, I, I would argue, and I'm just really grateful for this. Obviously, I didn't earn it, but I'm, I think the inheritance and the exposure to um in some ways, the real deal and a very like pure um, spirit is alive way of life um, that wasn't churchy hardly really at all um, was was unique was unique to have to, was unique at least amongst my peers to have that be my starting place um, uh, and then as an adult have to I became I, I sort of had my own faith experience in the context of a very secular high school, aggressively secular high school, I would say in New England. Um, and was sort of a, became a bit of an alien, I think, to my peers in that because no one had any of those frames of reference and probably thought that Christianity in particular was very backwards. And for, I don't know, Midwestern, far, I don't know, there was like all these associations. Um, and so that was its own kind of experience of just having to be quite pure in that. And it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of cultural support for these crazy radical beliefs. <laughs> um, so yeah, so you kind of, you're, you, that's very humbling. You know, you don't walk around proud per se. You just walk around like cherishing something that feels secret and sacred. And uh, so it wasn't until later that I eventually met other people of faith and um, who that, who did remind me of my grandfather. And then I started learning about all these like ways in which faith and culture do and don't mix in good ways and ugly ways. And um, all the, of course, speaking of scaffolding and social architecture, all the institutional um, idiosyncrasies of Christianity in particular, um, denominations, ecclesiology, all that jazz. Um, so it continues to be, you know, this is so many years later now, 20 years after college, but um, it continues to be a, I think I, I continue to be in the school of this um, mysterious faith that is rooted in his, history and incarnation and flesh um, and therefore human institutions eventually and the delicate dance of all that um, and how it's always a little, it can sometimes always feel a little bit messed up. Like we're, I think we're always wanting like just the pure thing um, and inevitably uh, it's always more complicated than that because we're talking about human beings. <laughs> so you studied at Wheaton, you went to college mm -hmm. at Wheaton, which is sort of like your mainstream evangelical institution. Um, could you talk a little bit about that, what that experience was like uh, for you then and then how how you see that now or what's changed, what hasn't through that experience in, uh, in Wheaton College. I was saying to my husband yesterday, I was like, you know, it's funny for all my 
ways in which I'm not always sure. Like I get, I'm going to be candid here, but like I'll get Wheaton's alumni magazine now and some of the like certain remains an intellectually rigorous place. And you can tell there's like a thoughtfulness to everything, but it's, there's like an evangelical lease and a structure of the imagination that I just don't identify with anymore. Uh, I don't know if I ever fully did, um, but I have such trust in the faculty. I still have such trust in the faculty there to, again, go after the pure thing as it manifests in our complex history and world. Um, and I think the new, the sort of nuanced way in which Christian thought is done at Wheaton remains something I'm so grateful for. But so I went there from a completely opposite subculture in high school. So it was a total shock. I vividly think, remember getting a C, I think, on my first anthropology 101 exam midterm or something because I was sure probably had some hubris. Like I'd come from this super rigorous spot that was very cutthroat. And I got to Wheaton and everyone was so nice and warm and fuzzy. And it was like that Christian Midwestern thing. And I was like, oh, this is like summer camp. You don't have to try hard here. Like it'll just be a breeze. Like I don't know what I was thinking. Clearly hubris and naivete. And and so clearly I got bitten right away, realizing like, wait a second, this is actually an academic institution. I have to try the devotionals they give in the beginning of class doesn't mean I'm going to get an A. Like it was just, there were so many things that were just out of body, out of any sort of frame of reference. Um, I wound up loving it. In the era I went, I was the early 2000s. Um, it was, like I said, I think the faculty were the highlight for me. Of course, a few lifelong friendships that were forged out of the place. But it's sort of, you know, I joke about Wheaton as the kind of place where by your senior year, the one thing that unites everybody is that everybody says, every student says, I'm not a typical Wheaton student. So there is this like self-conscious critiquing muscle built in to just the care, not the charism, but built into the shtick of the place. Um, partly it attracts certain kind of rambunctious, you could argue like a bit of a smart ass type <laughs> uh, person. Um, and people who are just, there's, I think what I loved about it was there was no question that was forbidden. And you had this unique pairing of a shared love um, coming in that was foundational to one's life. In this case, like a shared love in a salvation story and a particular human being that was also God. And that was, had somehow been forged in each of us, whether in my case, a few years prior and other people's cases through lifelong, you know, institutional formation. So that was this like thing that kind of shaped an ethos that ha had goods and bads. And so at times it could be like homogenous or overly glib and you're 19. So you don't, you haven't suffered usually all that much yet. So like the sort of glib things people would say about how God works, I look back and, you know, we'd all be very embarrassed of, but the confidence with which those things were said. But I think that's true of anything you say when you're young. The pairing of the shared love as grounding and sort of relational intensity with faculty and with peers and the, paired with this intellectual ferment that was really robust, you know, taking classes in postmodernism and then seeing how that related to certain economic theories, to certain like theories of history, to the arts. I just found debates at Wheaton really fun. Like you were encouraged to question truth itself. You were encouraged to question that God existed. So I, I did not feel imprisoned at all there. I mean, I think there's layers to a place like that. I don't, you know, maybe I was attracted to a certain sort of like really earnestly seeking mischievous kind of person. And those people became my friends. And those are the faculty I was attracted to as well. But it's not ideologically confining. And this may have shifted given our political era. But I, you know, 
I would, you know, probably more than half of the students or, or maybe a lot more than that would come in from sort of, you know, very wholesome, somewhat conservative families, certainly conservative theologically, maybe conservative politically, but you, you would leave with like such a mix, such a mix. And I, I view that as a success, not, not, I'm not trying to say it needs to, I wasn't, I'm not encouraging like, oh, it has to become progressive. But I think there was a sense of we're trying to train people to think Christianly here first and foremost, and there may be political implications to that, but more likely we're honing like like deeply human questions that have a transcendent frame of reference. And I I just found it so intellectually vibrant and free. Um, You had mentioned earlier in our conversation about uh, being able to kind of bridge between different communities. You mentioned Wheaton and Harvard kind of going back and forth and talk a little bit about that, how you do that even now in your work, how you feel. I think you talked about morally divergent perspectives Mm -hmm. and, and worldviews kind of going on today in our culture. How do you how do you navigate that and and go between those different worlds? Yeah, I mean there is an element of just doing it. Like I don't know if I overly strategize. I mean I I I do think I there are certain worlds I find myself in. You know on the one hand I said earlier I can envy those that come from very strong, deep roots. And I do feel that way, just family backgrounds, like people who grew up with like five generations of Mennonites or this, you know, so there's, but I think there is a, I do probably get suffocated with a certain kind of smallness uh, and parochialism sometimes. So I, I guess I naturally find myself seeking range in a day between social classes and between races. And yeah, I think I'm just so interested. I grew up in a family where we sat at the dinner table every night and explored, you know, or the statement was like, we're all, all people are products of their culture. So I think that is just like a, a baseline curiosity. It begins with curiosity. I I, I think in general, we, none of us are very good at explaining ourselves, but there's, when it comes to just the habits and rhythms of my life, they're out of an unusual or like out of a fairly eclectic set of geographic experiences. I lived in Houston for quite a few years after a decade in DC. And that's where I really cut my teeth journalistically living in and around immigrant communities. But I was also sort of attached to different kinds of religious communities of different religions. And and I think just the more you have exposure and build friendships with all sorts of people, and then you also have an appreciation for institutions. It's like this mapping, this like web and weaving and then you bring, hopefully, as you mature, like a heart of generosity to try to be of service. I think I I guess I just, my brain naturally thinks, okay, this is just as of this week, like you young DC go-getter age 28, who's thinking you need to build, you're like, you have this vision to build like silent retreat, places of silent retreat for the, for the busy and powerful or whatever. And, oh, and I'm meeting this working class person in Indiana who. Um, also has this like deep desire for and a sense that it's time for silence and people just need resources. And then how do you like, how do I, how do I somehow bring you two together? Cause there could be, so I think there's just, there's a bunch of things going on here, but it's like eclectic exposure, delight in human beings, curiosity that doesn't die. You know, I don't know if I am the best listener, but I do find I try to be, I try to be disciplined about withholding judgment, like of character or whatever else until you just, you know, people always surprise you inevitably. So I I don't know if I'm totally answering your question, but those are just sort of some personal instincts and habits. And then with the, with an institution or running a magazine, you know, we are, comment is publicly grounded in what we call 2000 years of Christian social thought. So that's its own set of ecumenical streams, Orthodox, Protestant, Catholic, and everything in between. Um, But we're open to very much open. In fact, 
like eager to receive and publish writers who don't share those priors, in part because I think I'm just, I've grown to be of the conviction that culturally sensitive people of faith, I think are asking really good questions, but I don't actually find in a contemporary key, many people of faith, even with the scholarship and expertise on a given subject, AI, the pol- you know polarization and tribalism to, I mean, name, you know, the end of life care to biomedicine to uh, capitalism, you know, name any topic. I really don't find that many people of faith who are offering extremely compelling imaginative answers. So I sort of, my formula is like, I do feel like a certain kind of reading, thinking, frankly, earnest Christian with sort of a transcendent frame of reference is pretty fluent in the goods we seek. And we have a set of ideals that we feel like we ourselves are being sanctified towards, are, are tasked with stewarding on this earth and in this life. But we can we can maybe prompt, if, if we're asking maybe some of the most, the deepest questions that are right on, let's let's dwell there, but let's open wide the doors to see who has the best answers. So that's a little how I run comment, like not, not, not totally freely. Like I do, I am conscious of the fact that, you know, there's a certain flavor of mind we want to attract. There's a certain, we're not going to, I think we could probably stir the pot more than we do. And I'm going to work on that this year within reason and with discernment, but we're not, we don't want to like be in the culture war game, but there's, I don't know. I think I just have a confident, I just have a, almost a, a magic, like, delight that all truth is God's truth. And may the, may, you know, there are a lot of intellectuals out there that are atheists who have a ton of integrity in their work. And, you know, there, I, I sort of believe there's, there's some revelation operating um, and we want to celebrate that and feature that and be in dialogue with them to sharpen our own, often I would say vague answers. I find Christians when it comes to like prescribing and giving like a solution to any problem to be very, very vague and dwell overly on metaphors. So I'm, so yeah, it's a striving after excellence while, while acknowledging, I still feel like we are tapping into the questions that are at the heart of so many human beings longings. So maybe that's our strength. pandemic and after the murder of George Floyd, you were really concerned about these issues and the divisions of polarization happening and, and you started breaking ground this this movement. Could you talk a little bit about breaking ground and what that uh, was about, is about? Is that still at work? I know that was really started in the beginning in the during the pandemic. And what is that movement? And is it still happening? Breaking ground, yeah. It it is hard to explain. I am not naturally entrepreneurial. Um COVID occurred like everybody it was a lot of hunkering down. How do we respond? And I just thought initially, okay, I run this magazine. Um, it does feel like a ton, you know, we, we, at the time, none of us knew exactly how bad it would be. I had for some maybe providential reason been, um, actually involved in sort of a rabbinically led a rabbi was leading this sort of study of different parts of the Hebrew scriptures with me and some other women. And we had been studying this motif of what happens when, what happens when you see like mass death, whether through horrifically like a genocide or a plague. And so it just was weird. And then COVID happened. And I was like, some, it was sort of a spiritual thing of just like seeing this just almost disturbing pattern of 
if you believe in a God who's at work, even through tremendous suffering and like mass casualties and the horror of all that, which I, I you know, is very troubling <laughs> that there is this weird way in which new life does come from that. And so there, it was just this like logic of, okay, is this a time of being remade as a globe civilizationally, however we want to. So I began with that and thought, well, maybe Comet can publish a few reflections on that notion. Could we provide just some resources, spiritual practices, contemplative stuff that is rich, that poetry that could kind of accompany people during this time. And it's a longer technical story. Essentially, a lot of fellow magazines and other small organizations that I really respected were having to really cut staff because of budget and some were being deemed non-essential and all that. Um, And I was just seeing all this talent like be fallow. And I thought, well, what if we could collect a bunch of people and do a more collaborative extra publishing project that is really asking, what is this pandemic revealing about our society? Um, if this is really a historical juncture and sort of a hinge moment, which is maybe just an accelerated manifestation of what has long been a bit of a hinge liminal moment at some broader centuries long level, um, maybe this is a reimagining time, but we need space to reimagine out loud institutionally, logic, norms, personal habits, all of that. So super broad, um, but I had some like criteria of the kind of writers I wanted um, and the, and just the, uh, I think kind of fragrance, we sort of began to see, I was, we were operating out of this, like what we call this, like Christian humanist tradition, which often comes alive actually during some sort of global or geopolitical crisis. If you look yeah. back at various groups that started coming together and, and were really thinking through profound questions of what it means to be human when forces are on the rise that seem to be trying to eradicate our humanity or take out our agency or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, so that was like all in the water and then breaking ground became essentially this um, year long, just uh, really a multimedia website with, I hope pretty, some pretty thoughtful essays. We did events, podcasts. We, I, we did an experiment of publishing, looking at throughout history of sermons from different traditions, the black church, the Catholic church reformed, I think Anabaptist that, were remotely like socially consequential in their day if they got beyond the pulpit. And um, so we did a lot of different things. It was like a, a, just a sandbox and it became a book or the best of the platform turned into an anthology that I look at as a tiny bit of like a, it's a choir of voices, but kind of like a diary of Anne Frank of, of the pandemic. And then of course we didn't know George Floyd was going to happen. I mean, I knew like race and injustice was going to play a crucial role in themes of those themes would be woven into because it was already becoming evident. Those things were becoming evident in the pandemic in terms of what it was unmasking. I didn't expect police brutality in particular. And then fast forward to January 6th in the American context, like that, all of that, those broader like political dynamics um, was a wild ride to just try to not cover it as news, but try to see beneath the waves. Um, so I'm not sure we did as well, frankly, at the reimagining the future bit. I My comfort is I don't know many people who <laughs> are, I mean, I think every leader I talk to is like, I feel a lot of clarity, but I, about what, like kind of what animates our society, good, bad, and ugly. But I have, as a result of the pandemic, um, and for those who follow Breaking Ground, maybe as a result of like just following that 
platform um, that year, but I don't know what to do next or how this necessarily informs how I need to lead my organization differently or this. Mm. So to, to wrap this up, Breaking Ground does still exist. It has now, what, what happened was um, when the publishing platform started and I was trying to sort of collect a few more kind of specifically editorial talents to help me do this, um, along the way, a variety of institutions and networks and sort of associations really resonated with the vision, wanted to be part of it. And so we kind of had this overarching like sponsorship almost of, at the time about 20 institutional partners. These are seminaries, universities, associations of colleges, associations of social service organizations. So they're kind of like national or international perch collectives and or like a magazine or a cultural festival, anything that kind of has some sort of uh, formation impact albeit in different crafts and domains. So mm. they were like, we see something here. We we like how morally responsible this is trying to be. We want to be a part of it. Um, and that community of leaders, which has continues to grow um, again, and we're kind of our axle together, though though there's different denominations, there's there is a shared faith that we welcome. Anyways, it's it remains a bit nebulous, but there is sort of this Christian humanist strain. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to put some language to that. What binds us together? Is this a new sort of ecosystem that's not like um, in the classic old silos that is, you know, open, you know, not fearful of pluralism, but sober about some of its about some of its dynamics um, that really wants to look outward, does not want to be navel gazing inward towards the church and like really serve our society. And that, so we're kind of, we calling ourselves like a learning community of institutional leaders. And we, um, it's almost like a, it, it's a, it's a group of people that are not in politics, but are trying to figure out how do we embody and what is the work that needs to be done either in our own institutions or maybe in some broader published form that has some power because it represents so many different kinds of organizations um, that is not like Christian nationalism on the one side or there's certain trends in the elite intellectual world of like Catholic integralism, that post-liberal world mm-hmm. that is not sort of far left Um, associates Christianity purely with all things colonialism and oppression, but that is also not this sort of technocratic liberal elite that just is another version of like a West to the rest thing of just totally forgetting the transcendent altogether and has no frame of reference for things like telos. and, And so is there a fourth way that is needs some resourcing, needs plausibility structures, needs encouragement, and gives us a name for, it's not like necessarily just po- people who feel politically homeless, but we, we how do we put some teeth on a tradition that's actually quite old, but feels like it's getting drowned out in the politicized frameworks of our time. So, so right now it is like a learning community of largely institutional leaders that are trying to figure that out together that I continue to sort of be the host for and the facilitator of, mm-hmm. um, and we'll see where it goes. Yeah. I think it's, you know, what I'm learning is some of these institutional leaders, especially now, they can't necessarily take on a new project that's collaborative, but they like deeply need to feel like they're not alone as they navigate very polarized constituencies and often huge economic kind of utilitarian challenges to their mission. And they just need a place to sort of like be a whole person. Yeah. No, I noticed quite a broad-based support in in the Breaking Ground Network. And I'm curious about what that's been like um, because a lot of people look and they see 
uh, you mentioned Christian nationalism and sort mm-hmm. of the a good chunk of the white evangelical world mm-hmm. is partly responsible for the division and polarization going on. How do you, as a, as a Christian voice, both in Common Magazine, you as a speaker, as well as with this network about breaking ground, deal with that contradiction as people of faith draw you both you're both drawing on the same faith but coming to different conclusions and um has there been dialogue with that or what what's that been like yeah. speaking into the christian community the more you know conservative mm-hmm. traditional christian nationalist type of community how has that been i'm curious how that looks in the yeah. circles that you're you're working in yeah it's a really good question um and it's something i'm wrestling with because i would say frankly my you know, time is short. We're limited. Our organizations are limited. We're limited as human beings. The days are only 24 hours. And I would say I might have said even a year ago, life is too short. My life is too short. Comment. We need to know what we can do and what we can't do. Um, I'm, I, I'm not gonna, I, I can't, I, I, I just haven't made it my mission. I'm also not overly, I don't have the skills of debate or fighting. I don't, I don't spend a lot of time. I don't actually, I don't spend a lot of time with sort of the Christian nationalist world. And I am, you know, I support whether it's a David French, whether it's, you know, there's, there's quite a few like fluent, both public figures and scholars that um, are diagnosing all that's going on there at varying levels, I would say of responsibility, um, at varying levels of sort of integrity, uh, and skill and, and, and not over caricature that I, I follow their work and I sort of quietly, uh, I learn a lot from it and I, and I'm, I'm happy to keep abreast of it. Um, it's tricky. I think this is like, I, I'm, I might answer it a little bit differently right now because I'm, um, Partly like comment itself is a cultural magazine. We're not a, we're, it's not that we're apolitical per se, but we will scramble a lot of political categories because we believe in labor unions, but most of, you know, we also believe in like sort of a culture of life from cradle to great, you know, if you name our various debates, we sort of probably would almost equally fall on left leaning issues and right leaning issues, um, which I call Christianity. But <laughs> um, so I think it's a tr- it's a tricky thing and i've been wondering should i be spending more time analyzing both analyzing in our pages specifically the christian nationalist stuff like i've wondered for instance this is i'll get concrete at the end of last year or mid some early fall learning all about these rallies that i guess were becoming bigger and bigger and bigger almost to like trump level size that this guy michael flynn who was a former general in his administration he's like an irish catholic but he was doing these. And then they were happening at the same time as this other group, Turning Point USA, both of which are leveraging a lot of Christian nationalist rhetoric uh, and fueling, like it's sort of like baptizing and giving a narrative for the outrage. And I was looking at some of their theories of change and they're creating toolkits at local levels. And a lot of the the actual like theory of how you galvanize a community was similar to what Comment aspires to do, because we're trying to maybe be more than a magazine and provide toolkits Mm -hmm. that are much more hope oriented in local levels. And but the mission and the narrative is so different. Um, and I was disturbed by just watching some footage of some of this stuff, like seeing violence be baptized and sort of the, the what are the lines of difference being drawn? Oh, the elites. Oh, the swamp. Oh, um, uh, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm sure I'm not really in some of those like never Trump circles in a, any prominent way because we just don't. 
partly because I, I also, I just feel like reality is complicated and we want to honor human beings first. So let's just first listen before we like totally generalize over whole groups of people. Um, but, but I, I think I'm trying to figure out this may be a year where we need to step out and be more aggressive and sort of naming names mm-hmm. and um, declaring some of the boundary lines of, I don't want to necessarily use the word enemy, although I could, but of her- of what I would just call heresy, because we are trying to actually, but that's it, but that's a tricky thing. I mean, I think, but I'm, 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 I'm committed to doing that. I'm committed to finding the right writers to do that for us. Um, I would, I would say in my own kind of personal um, speaking in that, like who, whoever I am out there and I'm kind of a nobody, I would say for the most part, I don't, but when I'm out there, whether, you know, and, and speaking events and who's hosting it, you know, that's a self-selected audience. A lot of the time, like, I don't think a lot of Christian nationalists are going to come to a Lilly endowment or a Fetzer Institute talk or whatever, but, but um, I, when I do speak to more um, people who are tempted towards, because a lot of the, I think a lot of people who are increasingly say going towards Christian nationalism or, or on the other side, going towards a certain kind of quite far left, or you could call it, I have a friend who, in, who's British who calls it like the tofu eating wokarati. <laughs> so like, you know, these like funny characters. Um, a lot of it is people tempted because they feel like the options are shrinking and they feel got at by these options and they know they're not that. And, but there are a few things that are plausible in this crowd and it's suddenly, and then as soon as something personal occurs, um, then I think then they go all the way over. And so I I view a lot of my work and comments work as like, how do we guard against those temptations, which are so human and actually often have nothing to do with ideology or politics, usually have to do with pain and fear. Often, I mean, I'm really interested in how like family fracture and sort of family pain and brokenness in our society Mm. is fueling our political dysfunction. Mm. Um, We might explore that later this year, but I don't know if I'm totally answering your question. I think I feel humbled by the fact that mm-hmm. it's a world I have um, some strong opinions around, like the Christian nationalist world, I just find quite disturbing and offensive. And at the same time, I tr- I'm like trying to not withhold judgment, but I um, I, I want to listen to the stories behind it. And, and I, and I, I think I get discouraged. I do get discouraged when I feel like, oh, there's no room for dialogue here. And actually, you know what? I'm not even speaking a language they understand. You know, if I point out what I feel like are very obvious, like inconsistencies in their values, it's they're just going to hear that as contempt from some girl with a BA. You know, you know, it's just like all those dynamics. And so I, 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 I want to be more aggressive and sort of calling out these camps that we could even be affiliated with. Well, I don't think we would be affiliated, but because we're comment isn't even associated with the evangelical world. We come more from like a reform stream and we publish a lot of Catholics. And so there's all these like nuances internal to the community, but then it can also mean that your actual, like our core readers are really those people who a little bit like me, I think are trying to bridge worlds, hold constituencies at sometimes national, more often local levels, usually in an institutional context, but sometimes they could be a stay-at-home mom that are really beloved, have a friendship circle, are an influential figure in their congregational community, in their block, uh, at the local sort of community center. And they are trying to figure out how to talk to people they once called a friend. And so we're trying to equip those people not to give up and not to um, curl inward. It's basic work but it's it's very um, tricky when you believe in the dignity of all human beings. That's where it gets tricky.
I were to really peel back the curtain and see how many even self-identifying Christian nationalists or were reading our stuff or reading me and like throwing up their hands in disgust, it would probably be the majority of them, to be honest, because they would view it somehow as too fancy or squishy or too feminine. I don't know. But I, I'm sort of blissful, a little blissfully ignorant. I don't think they're attract, attracted to us, which is, you know, its own problem. Maybe I need to be thinking about. So these are good questions. Well, a lot of Christian, quote, Christian nationalists don't think of themselves like that, would never use that self-describing label. Part of the the challenge is people wouldn't ever own, many people wouldn't own that label. Some, right. some wear it proudly, other people wouldn't own it. Yeah. So that's where it's, where it's tricky to kind of people who have that. Yeah. Oh, I guess I'll say you're prompting us. I I think, you know, I began comment or I began at the editorship a few years ago with out of my own life experience, faith formation journey, very much with a bullish vision or desire to highlight, to really open wide the gates of who we're calling like the gatekeepers of Christian social thought to be not just sort of people who look like me, but actually like there's like totally different traditions that never get sort of rendered or given space in the historiography of say American evangelicalism, you know, immigrant churches, of course, certain kinds of black churches. So I think that was like a go- early on, I was like, we need to just, and it wasn't like a DEI, it wasn't framed in like DEI, it was framed in like, there is, there is beauty here that has huge lessons for the more beleaguered, discouraged, sick parts of the church that often in my observation do tend to be wider. Uh, you know, I'm really generalizing here, but I think my approach has been, and this is what I'm questioning, how, to, you know, try as best I can with lots of limitation and failures and you know, rivers, you know, bridges of trust to build, all of which is relational and time intensive. I'm wanted to sort of uphold and celebrate and honor those that are showing a truer way, hoping that that will be compelling and that they're, they're, they're not, they're not always white. They're not often white evangelicals or they're not like to try to show a deeper way that often has like the wisdom from suffering laced into the story that has um, sometimes comes from a more communitarian culture. And this is not to like just flat out glorify or think those who are not Caucasian are immediately holy. This isn't like, I mean, I think we try to do a lot of honest work on all of that from a lot of different voices. But my approach has been to always try to be constructive and celebratory of the good that's often coming from unexpected places, including those places that some from a more dominant culture that's now feeling afraid and persecuted would be surprised and disarmed by because they see actually shared values and beauty. So I've taken the like celebrate, celebrate the unexpected approach instead of this is why you're wrong approach. And I'm not, I think right now I'm thinking maybe I actually need to do a bit more of both, mm-hmm. that they're not inconsistent with each other. So I want to just, I'm curious, you 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 move in the kind of meta world of spirituality and culture um, and have that, that voice and work with other people with that voice. I'm curious in your own kind of, um, how do you flesh it down to your own faith community in your life? What what is what is your faith involvement look like? You mentioned being rooted. How does that look like for you where you get your roots from in your own spiritual community? Yeah, thank you. Um, I would say this question, it was shook up quite a bit over COVID, like a lot of people, because our own church community, which is a block and a half from where I'm talking to you right now, our home had not actually a lot of churches suffered over COVID, I think largely for political reasons and then distance and social distancing didn't help, but ours was not because of politics, but some other, just like a major leadership transition that didn't go well. And so just kind of that community disintegrated in many ways. And, um, and I confess I didn't do Zoom church very well. And there was a sense in which, yeah, it's interesting to use the word meta, which is a word I don't think about or use really, but, um, 
that breaking ground project was so, it was so um, demanding, but also felt so like rewarding. Like you're kind of partnering. It was like a response to a sense of call, just trying to do one's best and kind of creating and enjoying a community, however virtual at the time that was like addressing, we could only do some, it was like, it was the perfect timing for people to like enjoy something virtual and quote meta from all over, you know, the continent because we were stuck in our homes forever for those. Um, so it's a timely question. Um, I would say as of this new year, we were sort of in a liminal space last year and we kept, my husband and I kept saying like, we cannot, you know, we do not, it's, it's, it'd be very easy to enter a world of a certain kind of elite, very thoughtful, like actually quite often like spiritually rich, um, spiritually insightful, also humble. Like these are people of good character, but it'd be easy to enter a world of kind of like national figures who are all in this, a certain kind of singing to one another in a certain kind of key and language, share the same concerns. And because those are, you know, these are really interesting people They all, you know, there's actually, they have a lot of sort of virtue and self-discipline. There's like so many things going on and, and they kind of, you know, they see the world in a similar way. Um, but we both have sort of said, and this, and this is just my post new year's um, commitment and reflection. Like we, we, we have to refuse that cannot be our community, or at least even we want to be responsive to that because there are certain conversations and decision makers there and people of influence that, um, you know, you hope to just be of service where you've been placed and, but, um, yeah, I think I'm trying to lead the charge in our own household of like, we have to be, let's, let's re-engage where, so we have, we're our sort of rejoining our local church, which, which was rather the community was decimated and slowed over COVID for complicated reasons. And now it's really rebuilding. And in many ways there's an opening for, and it's always been a very diverse community, professionally, ethnically, cognitively, social class. So we're really lucky in that regard. And it's age-wise, it's very diverse. It's kind of a small little community. But it just feels like it really has a desire to serve our city and our place. And I think we're wanting to um, and committed to um, lending our gifts in a more active way. And I think often I've, I've viewed the local congregation as a place to get nourished so that I can then serve outward. And I still, you know, all, we all have different positions vis-a-vis these kind of communities, but I am desiring a little bit more of inconvenient accountability and demand from, you know, fleshly needs right around me. So that, so that's, and I think we desire it to be enshrined in an institution. We, there's some very close friendships. I mean, I'm very committed to the local, local relationships and the, just the the grist and the texture of that um that's not often super deep or intellectual it's just like helping a friend dying of cancer make sure her kids are t- you know it's all the practical things um that that's that's always been a part of our lives but there is something unique and actually rooting in at least in my, my case instead of like going out and we have, we live about a block from a little homeless um, encampment. And I just, over Christmas, I was like, what if this next year, you know, we just be nice. I love to cook. We should, we should figure out a way to sort of be very present right there and just have hot meals or something like that. And, and then I said, it'd be so nice this time around to do something like that, not totally of our own curation and concoction, but somehow it just feels better to have like not even the resources in this case, but like an, a local institutional, 
platform, platform's the wrong word, but um, base or sponsor. I don't, I'm using these words poorly, but um, this gets all the way back to social architecture. Like there's so much that's given in an institution. However, in our case, like stumbling around and fragile and broken and wounded and not really with a lot of resources, resources except the human beings in it but i don't know why there's just something about like a named collective that has a shared ritual every week and shared set of rituals and some shared outlook um that makes a difference so that you're not just creating it all from scratch on your own so that's kind of giving you the very present (laughs) the the present x-ray of like we're we're recommitting to a a local congregation that will require less of that what i guess you used meta i would call it um a Jetsons, like a Jetson spiritual life. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. Um, well, just to, to wrap up, are there any projects that you're working on now that you're excited about? You've, you've hinted at some, the things you're wrestling with uh, yeah. that you could talk about. Well, I think, um, thanks. Yeah. I, I, I'm hoping this is a year of um, stability and maturation. We really, as a magazine, I do, I mean, my, my favorite moments in life are a meal around a table, preferably with some live music and kind of uncommon people finding surprise, like insight, revelation, joy, laughter, tears, all that, you know, and, and a lot of lightheartedness and silliness too. Um, we do a lot of that sort of hosting in our own home. And I'm kind of just, I've seen the power of good questions and what they can prompt with a little bit of a, maybe a some other nudges like a recipe and a playlist and other things So we're comet is trying to kind of figure out how do we really um we have something called comet suppers which is a is encouraging people in their own neighborhoods or if they're president of a university with their board or whatever whatever collective it is um if say if you did this issue on friendship eight questions and reflecting on that in one's own life and in one's broader society, um, you know, how can we give people an easy toolkit to sort of have these richer times together, whether with people they know well or with very unlikely compatriots more often around the country who are our champions who can do that for us well? How do we equip and nourish them so that we're kind of in that mode of like, how can this magazine that is really trying to unearth um both the hard realities of life in a fallen world and the beauty that always graces it nonetheless how can that not just be an experience solitary on a on a page but um be broken open like bread and real homes and lives and workplaces and so on so we're right at that juncture of starting to experiment with that um i'm excited to see what happens and what the feedback is and how this may change lives and relationships and introduce people and expose them to new ways of seeing that's out of like the New York times versus Fox news, like narratives, you know, you know, just like give people a thriving imagination. So, um, yeah, we're I, so much of what we do. I've learned as we can be a little intellectual at times, but so much of what we do is really best embodied in relationship and is best conveyed through physical relationship. And I, I think post-COVID people are hungry for that. So we just need to give them a little bit of tools. Well, thank you so much. And for thank being with you. Us. Thanks for your great questions. I uh, really appreciate the integration of like public, private, personal, vocational. Um, it's rare to get to reflect all together. I don't know. It was probably a very messy ball of yarn, but um, thanks for letting me unravel it a little bit. <laughs> Ann Snyder is the editor-in-chief of Comment Magazine. Thank you for listening to this episode of Intersections. 
To subscribe, click follow in your Apple, Google, or Spotify podcast app and make sure to leave a review. All archived podcasts and information about our guests can be found on our website, intersectionspodcast.org. On our website, you can sign up for our free At The Intersections newsletter and listen to Faith Matters Conversations featuring panels of spiritual leaders discussing how their faith traditions speak to a variety of topics. You can contact Intersections by emailing info at intersectionspodcast.org. I'm Seth Shapiro, and join us on our next episode where we will continue exploring the crossroads of ideas on Intersections. Intersections.